the legendary superpowers show. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 141 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'm going to continue my coverage of the legendary superpowers show, season 8 of Super Friends. And this week, I'm going to cover the two-parter, Darkseid's Golden Trap. And in the second half, I'm going to cover the Island of the Dinosaurs and Uncle Mixias Piddling. So this week, we're going to get one full-sized episode, one 22-minute story, and a couple of 11-minute jobs. So, But before we get to that, I have feedback to address. This feedback is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Mana Screen, episode 130. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike, Patrick, and Dario. I've never watched the Donner Cut of this movie, and I've never really had a desire to. To be honest, I enjoyed listening to your conversation about it, but I still don't have any strong desire to watch it. If I happen to come across it, I'll probably watch it as a curiosity, but I can't imagine I'd seek it out. Since I've never seen it, I really don't have much to contribute to your discussion, except on a couple of tangential points. First, when mentioning live-action versions of General Zod, I don't think you mentioned Colin Salmon, who plays him on the Krypton TV series on the Sci-Fi Network. For my money, he is my favorite version of General Drew Zod from comics, animation, movies, or television, and I'm looking forward to his return in Season 2 of the series. Second, at one point, Mike quotes Mr. Spock from Star Trek saying, After a time, you may, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. It was not logical, but it is often true. And it says he doesn't recall which episode it's from, but it's from the episode Amok Time, in which Spock goes to the pond far to mate with T'Pring who does not want to be Spock's mate, and has a plan for Spock to engage in combat with Kirk, so that he will be free to take her preferred mate, Stun. After the combat, in which Spock believes he has killed Kirk, he frees the prank from her bond to him, and warns Stun with that quote. Live long and prosper, Dave. And uh, Dave had a PS on his email. He wrote, I have emailed Doc G to tell him of your defense of his position on the workings of Warp Drive. I'm sure he'll be pleased to hear it. I uh, wonder... After this episode comes out, Dave, you can uh, let me know how uh, Doc G uh, hand- took my defense of the uh, proper use of warp drive. All right, there's not a ton that I really want to uh, comment on from Dave's letter. Yeah, so I mean, I can definitely understand Dave uh, not being one of the people who really needed or wanted the Donner cut. You know, it is a uh, cur- it was always a curiosity of mine just to see what Donner's vision was for the film. Obviously, he didn't complete it, so there's no way of knowing what his true Superman two would have been. And the fact that Donner had never really gotten been able to film an ending to that movie kind of stands out as Michael Thaw was forced to use the turning back the world sequence, which, which for those of you who don't know, and I'll reiterate here, was the original ending for Superman 2. Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz just decided to move back to the end of the first film to give that film an emotional punch at the end. Had Donner and Mankiewicz returned to complete Superman 2, I'm sure they would have come up with a different way to restore the status quo of Lois not knowing that Clark Kent is Superman. And as for whether or not we mentioned Colin Salmon, I am not sure. We, we might have forgotten him. I mean, he's so new as Zod that, and I don't even think any, everybody in that conversation had watched Krypton. I know I have. I really can't speak for Patrick and Dario. I'm not sure if they had seen it or not. But yeah, I do like uh, Colin Salmon as uh, General Zod in, uh, on that sci-fi show. He is probably the most layered version of General Zod that we've had so far. The versions that were played in Superman 2 and... Uh, Man of Steel were both very single-minded characters. And yes, I am embarrassed to have not remembered which episode uh, that quote from Spock was from. You know, I kicked myself as soon as I read Dave's letter for the first time that, yeah, of course that was a mock time. That was actually one of my favorite episodes of uh, of the original series. Uh, but I guess there are so many uh, Spock wisdoms uh, sprinkled throughout the myriad versions of Star Trek that Leonard Nimoy has... Uh, Grace the screen with that. It's easy to uh, get these things confused. And, you know, 
And what I was referring to with that quote was, you know, some of the initial disappointment with the diner cut when uh, it came out. It was, you know, during the whole time, it was kind of this, and especially as far back as that Superman Cinema site was kind of beating the drum for this version of Superman 2. You know, the Brando footage was was just kind of this mystical white whale that was always out there. And that was really the only thing I wanted to see the Donner cut for. I just wanted to see the Brando footage of him restoring Superman in uh, in the movie. I could really care less about uh, who talks to Lex Luthor to deliver the necessary exposition, whether it's uh, Lara or Jor-El. I have no objection to Lara being used in the movie. Just it's inconsistent with uh, the first film, which is mainly my only complaint. I like consistency. Especially when you look at, uh, in the theatrical cut, if you look at Lex Luthor when he's talking to uh, Lara, he, even though Lara seems to be on the same uh, level as him, kind of on the same Z-axis, he's looking up toward the ceiling where the floating Jarrell head would be, and not right in front of him where Lara would be. So other than that little inconsistency, I have no objection to uh, Susanna York uh, getting some extended uh, FaceTime with Superman too. And it makes sense that Superman will discuss matters of the heart with uh, his mother and uh when we covered this episode, we discussed the difference between, between the way this was presented from Lara's point of view in the theatrical cut and uh, the way it was uh, treated by Jarrell. I mean, I would have been happy if I just saw the uh, Jarrell restoring Superman scene as a deleted scene. I never needed it to be part of the movie. I mean, it's not like I had to worry about it being taken out of context. If I saw the scene, I've seen the movie enough times, I know what the context of the scene is. And even if you don't, the original dialogue from Superman gives you everything you need, so... As I recall, my using that line was almost probably kind of a warning to uh, those folks that are out there banging the drum for the Snyder Cut of Justice League. For years, there was a group of us that banged the drum for the Donner Cut of Superman 2, and when it came out, yeah, it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. And the Snyder Cut of Justice League, again, will probably not be everything it's cracked up to be, if it exists at all. I still think it's way too soon for Warner Brothers to uh, release a Snyder Cut of Justice League. I mean, if it turns out that the Snyder Cut is better than what we were presented with, I can't see how it would be. But if the masses accept it, which again, I'm not sure they would. I think most of Zack Snyder's goodwill was burned out with Batman v Superman. But Warner Brothers basically doesn't want to end up with any egg on its face by releasing the Snyder Cut. Let's just say that. So maybe 10 or so years, somebody will, will come out with the Snyder Cut when we've moved on from all this. But I don't think that's happening anytime soon despite the best efforts of the fans at San Diego Comic-Con. So, with that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about Dark Side's Golden Trap. Hang around, folks. Are you willing to follow me on a journey? and risk getting lost in a swirling maze of past ages, protected only by our red indestructible capes as we break through the final unexplored realm of the time barrier to explore the fantastic Silver Age adventures of the world's greatest hero, Superman? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast as together we'll follow the Man of Steel, his cousin Supergirl, and his closest friends, Perry White, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Batman and Robin, and others in Superman's never-ending quest to defend truth and justice in the pages of Action Comics, Superman, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. 
go to the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, available on iTunes and most other podcast aggregators. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, Flipboard, and Stitcher. And after you listen, feel free to send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And unless you request otherwise, I look forward to reading your comments on future episodes. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape, standard safety equipment for traveling through the time barrier. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to lead this episode off with part one and two of Dark Side's Golden Trap. It had an original broadcast date of October 8th, 1984, and it was written by Alan Burnett and Jeff Segal. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. On Space Station Xeno, Dark Side appears at an underworld auction. Meanwhile, Superman, Wonder Woman, Black Vulcan and Firestorm capture a group of criminals in space. The latter three take the criminals' clothes and disguise themselves to infiltrate the auction. However, Superman has to bow out because the mission is too dangerous for him. Why? Darkseid tries to obtain a rare piece of gold kryptonite. And now, everyone, the final item up for bid. The one prize you've all been waiting for. Gaze upon gold kryptonite. <laughs> The only known chunk of gold kryptonite to exist in the entire universe! <laughs> if Superman were to come within a mere 20 feet of this rock, he would lose his powers forever! I do not imagine there is one among us who would not want the honor of ridding the universe of Superman! I will give you a few moments to ascertain your funds. I imagine that the bidding will be quite high for this priceless gem. The super friends outbid Darkseid, but are found out and captured. I admire your boldness, super friends, but the charade is over, for not only do I now have you, but the gold kryptonite as well. <laughs> At the Hall of Justice, Superman, Batman, and Eldorado got worried because the others at the auction had failed to return. Look, a transmission's coming in. Darkseid! Sorry to intrude, Super Friends, but I have some bad news for you. Wonder Woman, Black Vulcan, and Firestorm have been detained. I should have known. But you needn't worry about the gold kryptonite. It is safe within my keeping. Let the super friends go, Darkseid, or you'll have to answer to us. I will ignore your feeble threats, Batman. Your friends are in no immediate danger, as you can see. But unfortunately, the asteroid in which they are trapped is heading toward that nearby star. If you are able to locate the right star, you may be able to save them, but I would advise against trying. It's obvious, Superman, that Darkseid has designed this trap to expose you to the gold kryptonite. Of course, but I must do whatever I can to rescue them. First, we have to find out which star they're heading for. It could be any one of billions. 
I think I know someone who might be able to tell us. With a little help from a vegan shoeshine boy named Snitch. How about a shine, Snitch? Sure thing. <gasps> Maybe later. Relax, Snitch. We only want some information. <laughs> if it's about dark side, I don't know nothing. Which star will the Super Friends asteroid crash into? I don't know, honest. I thought you knew everything. It's not healthy to know too much about Darkseid. Why is it that I don't believe you? My telepathic sense tells me that he's speaking the truth. Yeah, see? But I also sense that he's holding something back. Something about... Call it back! Uh, okay, okay. But remember, you didn't hear it from me. Kalabak could answer your question and you can find him playing in the Gyro Jouster finals on the Moon of Games. The Moon of Games? Yeah, but you better hurry. When Kalabak plays Gyro Joust, the games don't last long. Thanks for the tips, Snitch. I'll give you odds that Kalabak won't tell you a thing. If I were you, amigo, I'd save your money. On the Moon of Games. So much for your loyal fans, Kalabak. Now, on what star has your father set his trap? Forget it. I won't tell you anything. You don't have to tell us, Kalibak. The star is Beta Maximus. Beta Maximus? That's on the far end of the galaxy. We'll have to leave at once. And how did you know? Weak minds are like open books, Kalibak. Superman rescues the others, but Darkseid uses the gold kryptonite on him. Side. What? Two Superman? What is this trickery? It was easy, Darkseid. Merely an illusion. You used the gold kryptonite on Batman. Superman's powers are intact. <sighs> Just wait until next time, Superman. He's escaping. <sighs> Alright, that was a pretty good episode, employing a bunch of good Superman concepts. The concept of gold kryptonite is something that hasn't been used in any incarnation of Superman in a long while. It was mostly a uh, pre-crisis thing. I believe the first time I really learned about gold kryptonite was in 1988 on that Saturday Night Live Superman 50th Anniversary special, and there was a segment with this guy basically kind of hawking all different kinds of kryptonite, and he basically explained what each piece of kryptonite did and uh, what effect it had on Superman. And for the most part, I recall it being accurate. I think he really only talked about green, gold, and red. I don't think it talked about any of the other variations. I don't remember it mentioning blue kryptonite or anything else. But the three prevalent forms of kryptonite in the Silver Age were green, red, and gold. So this was a good episode. I enjoyed it a great deal. And I'm going to cover it as one whole instead of the uh, two parts like the uh, show did, which makes more sense to me. I don't know why, when the opportunity presents itself to do a two-part story, why you would break it up into two segments, probably to keep a consistent format throughout. But it doesn't make sense for me to, you know, run the uh, little Super Friend Star thing and then go Dark Side Golden Trap Part 2. It just makes a, little, a lot more sense to just do it all as one. But I will make a note in my coverage where uh, Part 1 ends and the other begins. So... Apparently, a few humans have ever seen this criminal space station that is filled with all kinds of strange uh, aliens. This is the uh, 532nd annual underground auction in space. So, 
This is uh, quite the thing that happens uh, throughout the galaxy, I guess. They've been in business for a long time. The uh, first item is a disintegrator, and we uh, really uh, don't care much about this item in and of itself, but the bidding on this item is uh, interrupted by Darkseid, and uh, for a minute I thought he was uh, going to uh, just kind of sweep up the uh, disintegrator and outbid everybody, but nope, that's not what he's here for, and... uh, I'm, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, I really love Frank Welker's performance as Darkseid. Not, not to take anything away from Michael Ironside and the work he did in uh, the DC animated universe of the 90s and early 2000s, but to me, this what we hear in this show is the uh, definitive voice for Darkseid. And of course, like a typical child, Kalabak wanted the uh, disintegrator for himself, and he was upset his father uh, didn't want it. All of us parents uh, know that scene all too well from any kind of toy store. The kid wants it, they don't get it. You know, kid throws a tantrum, but that's pretty much all that is. The auction is not really that important right now, so we now we go to these uh, Dragonite ice creatures who are apparently they're late to the auction. And this whole sequence of the Super Friends pulling over the Dragon Dragonites is basically a ploy to uh, go undercover. Black Vulcan uh, is going to stop the Dragonites, but who uh, frees the ship so the Super Friends can't board it. But Superman saves the day, and he just kind of twists his ray gun into a pretzel. So the uh, ice people are attacking the Super Friends, and that gives Firestorm a chance to make a uh, chilly uh, reception pun. But, you know, Black Vulcan uses his electricity to warm the ship. With Firestorm, the nuclear man there, the man of fusion, so to speak, Black Vulcan is warming the ship, and you would think that would be Firestorm's job, but nope, the show here is going to go with Black Vulcan doing it. So after the Super Friends did all the work, Superman is going to uh, take all the credit by bringing the uh, Dragonites uh, to prison. At least, that's what I thought at first, but nope, it's all a setup because this mission is too dangerous for Superman. I'm not necessarily sure how I feel about uh, Superman uh, playing chauffeur when a mission is too dangerous for him. You know, he would still be involved just in a smart way. I guess I guess he still is involved by uh, sending the Dragonites to prison, but and I guess that's the smart way. I, I don't read the uh, synopses before I watch the episode, so my, when I take my notes, I don't necessarily know exactly how the episode is going to end when I'm taking my notes sometimes. I don't remember a lot of these episodes well enough to know them chapter and verse. So, but as of this moment, the Super Friends clearly know something about the auction that we don't, and it's not really like the show to build a mystery like this, but the storytellers are taking their time developing this episode. And you can do that when you have the full 22 minutes like this episode does. It's two 11-minute parts, so it's basically a full half-hour episode. And when you do that, you have the time necessary to develop your story, to let the concepts breathe, and uh, you can do something uh, seemingly un- unrelated and then tie it in later. So the uh, Super Friends are undercover at the auction, and... Uh, that's why they pulled over the Dragonites in the first place. And here it is, the last item, Gold Kryptonite, which can rob Superman, a Kryptonian of his or her superpowers. Not necessarily Superman, any Kryptonian that's uh, within range. And obviously Superman is known to all of these uh, intergalactic criminals, and you can, you would imagine that they all want it, but it's rare, and it, and you would think it would be expensive. According to this episode, it is the only known chunk of Gold Kryptonite in the universe, so that makes it a pretty rare find. And obviously this is what Darkseid wants. As if there's any doubt, and uh, Darkseid acknowledges that Superman is the most powerful super friend, and this gold kryptonite is obviously the key to neutralizing him. Not necessarily killing him, but robbing him of his powers permanently would take him off the table, and make the super friends far less of a threat to Darkseid than they would be with him. And as the uh, gold kryptonite comes up, the super friends arrive disguised as the Dragonites, and uh, this auction, for all of its high-powered criminals and high-value criminals, not very good security, as there's no picture ID, and the car just get, gets the super friends, and they just walk right in. And then Firestorm tricks his way uh, through a second checkpoint, and uh, 
when you get into the auction room, things get pretty interesting as Darkseid is going to outbid everybody for the most part on reputation alone. He underbidded everyone for the kryptonite he only bid one bream or ream or whatever it's called whatever their currency is he only bid one and everyone else is too afraid of dark side to outbid him until the other super friends start doing it and they start a bidding war and uh their currency is called bleams and as the super friends bid one of them reminds firestorm that he can turn the whole space station into bleams i'm not even sure firestorm knows what a bleem is i know i don't know what one is but i guess but over the course of this story, Firestorm is not going to have to figure it out. So the uh, Super Friends uh, won the bidding, and they're about to claim the Kryptonite. And, you know, Darkseid is thinking. You know, he is one of the smartest villains that the uh, Super Friends have faced throughout the uh, tenure of this show. At least, I mean, smart in uh, tactical thinking. Obviously, a lot of the scientists they faced over the years have been smart, but Darkseid shows the ability to outthink the Super Friends and see through their plots a little bit. He points out that the room is too hot for normal Dragonite, so... Darkseid determines them to be imposters, and the Omega Effect reveals the Super Friends, and uh, <laughs> as soon as they see the Super Friends, the, uh, everybody in the crowd just kind of takes off running in different directions to get the hell out of there. It's something we're going to see later on in the episode 2 and part 2, but Kalabak take offers to take care of the Super Friends for his father, but he's uh, caught in the stampede as only Kalabak can be. Kalabak is played for laughs in this show, which... It's unfortunate. I enjoy his character when he's presented in the Fourth World comics or other animations. I thought he was used to pretty good effect in uh, when he was used in the uh, DCAU, which made great use of the Fourth World characters. Kalabak is not supposed to be a joke. He's a failure, there's no doubt about that. He is definitely the incompetent son of Darkseid, but he's still formidable. He could go toe-to-toe with Superman, but here he can be taken out simply by a uh, stampede. Oh, and the Super Friends were so close. Darkseid takes them out just as they are about to grab the gold kryptonite. So now Firestorm doesn't have to worry about what a bleem is, and Darkseid has not only the gold kryptonite, but also he has some captive Super Friends. And that ends part one right around the 11-minute mark. The Bride of Darkseid was more like 15 and 7. Part one being longer than part two probably because of all the time needed for the introduction of firestorm but this time split pretty much right down the middle so for part two we start off back at the hall of justice with superman batman and el dorado as they are worried about black vulcan wonder woman and firestorm who have not called and superman thinks they would have called but el dorado reminds the man of steel with logic and if something happened to them then they probably can't call so it's good to know someone in the hall of justice is thinking pragmatically so here comes the transmission from dark side and he's got not only the super friends but the gold kryptonite as well. So Batman threatens Darkseid, and the Lord of Apocalypse doesn't really give a crap. And uh, despite the kryptonite, Superman is going to rescue his friends, uh, and Batman knows someone who can figure out which star the captives are falling into. Or maybe not necessarily figure it out, but tell them where to go find out. So Kalabak is off to uh, the Vega system to compete in some kind of tournament, and he is apparently the returning champion. The uh, Vega system is a real system in the... Uh, DC Universe, and it's not a very uh, savory place. So Batman uh, knows of this alien snitch, and uh, this is where he's going to get his information. Even on a, even in the Vegas system, Batman has an informant. Go figure. So the snitch points out to them, points them to the moon of games, and Kalabak is over there. So the snitch is afraid of Darkseid, and uh, we're seeing in the first part and here the kind of fear that Darkseid has uh, instilled throughout the universe. So we've got the gyro jousting game. That's basically... Uh, Kalabak is uh, jousting on an airborne ball. So, and Kalabak wins his match relatively easily. So, Eldorado is going to disguise himself with his holographic abilities and challenge Kalabak to a duel. And let's see how this goes. Superman seems shocked that Kalabak is a powerhouse, and you would think he'd know that, you know. 
I guess Superman hasn't gone toe-to-toe with Kalabak yet in uh, one-on-one combat, and we probably really won't see that, as you don't see that kind of one-on-one combat in this show. Superman uh, might have been a better choice to uh, do the gyro joust, but El Dorado uses his telepathy to uh, see where Kalabak is going to go, and that's how he uh, deflects all of uh, Darkseid's son's attack and manages to defeat him. And then, again, the Super Friends show up at the uh, gyro joust, and it clears in record time. So... Between Darkseid showing up and the Super Friends showing up, you got criminals running stampeding all over the place trying to get away. And I'll be honest, I've been to stadiums. I wish a stadium would clear this quickly after a ball game. Just saying. So Kalabak, who is the uh, dim-witted member of our Apocalypse crew, gets his mind read, and Eldorado reminds Kalabak how weak his mind is. Apparently it's very easy to read a weak mind, and Kalabak does not have a strong one. And after some chiding from the sod, Darkseid tells us that this is what he was hoping would happen. So! He read your mind, did he? That must not have taken much effort. I told you not to go. Quiet, Dasad. I look forward to the rescue of the captive super friends. You see, I was hoping the others would soon discover their location. For once I have all the super friends on that asteroid, I will use this on Superman, and then they shall all be stranded <laughs> so either that or he's just kind of adapting his plan to uh, Kalabak's weakness. But I do love the banter between Desaad and Kalabak, who comments how easy it must have been to read uh, Kalabak's mind, basically saying there's not much of a mind to read. So the Super Friends land on the asteroid, which is uh, falling toward Beta Maximus. Fortunately, it has a breathable atmosphere for some inexplicable reason, and uh, Firestorm makes a quip about wishing Wonder Woman had accepted one of Darkseid's proposals. Not because he cares about... Uh, Wonder Woman marrying Darkseid, but because then she wouldn't have been here. But it's good of Wonder Woman to say, no, she'd rather be here dying, falling into Beta Maximus than married to Darkseid. Being married to Darkseid probably is a fate worse than death. So that's when Superman shows up, breaks Darkseid's uh, device, and uh, everyone's ready to leave. But that's when Darkseid shows up and basically just kind of throws the gold kryptonite at Superman, who uh, just catches it, catches it like he's uh, receiving a touchdown pass. And this is where the episode fakes you out a little bit. I know I was looking at it kind of funny. As Superman kind of, kind of catches the gold uh, kryptonite, and it has seemingly no effect. I'm not sure what I was, the kind of effect I was expecting. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of effect losing Superman's powers would have on him. Would it cause him to keel over, or would he just stand there and suddenly become powerless? Either way, Firestorm thinks quickly and turns it into a bowling ball, and, uh, you know, I just got the feeling watching this sequence that something was up here. And sure enough, I was right. Batman is disguised as Superman, using Eldorado's holographic powers. And after all of that planning, Darkseid is foiled very easily. When he realizes he's defeated, he does. Darkseid does what he does. He shakes his fist, tells the Super Friends to get off his lawn, and he leaves. And Superman basically saves everybody from the collapsing asteroid, and everybody goes home. I like that the Super Friends have outsmarted Darkseid. They're not winning by smashing robots or with their fists. They're using super smarts, which is a great way to get yourself out of any kind of situation. You know, sometimes they need to fight the bad guy, that's true but sometimes all you need to do is outthink your opponent. That was a good episode. I liked the way the story was paced out, at least at first. These things always seem to end too quickly to be satisfying, but I enjoyed the slow build in the first part and all the various moving parts that we saw. You'll find that in a lot of two-parters, whether the pieces are 11 minutes, 22, or 42, the first parts always seem better it's sometimes really difficult to uh, stick the landing after you spend an entire episode setting things up. But, you know, I have no complaints. I really enjoyed uh, that two-parter. Now I'm going to take another break, play another promo, then I'm going to come back. I'm going to finish things up with Island of the, of the Dinosaurs and Uncle Mixias Pitalik. Hang around, folks. If you rebuild it, they will go. 
They burned it down. If you rebuild it, build it, they will come in. You didn't hear them? Beg your pardon? The voices? People? If you rebuild it, build it, they will go. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, build it, they will come in. They demolished it. If you rebuild it, build it, they will go. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The House of Frankenstein lives! You see, uh, we began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately it was, it was interrupted. And we're most anxious to take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition, covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, Vampirus. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. Are you crazy? Jack Nicholson. Oh, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's, uh... See what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor of medicine, law, and physics. To the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screens at the scenic House of Frankenstein where terror is only a listen away. <laughs> all right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes of this segment had an original broadcast date of October 15th, 1984, and we're going to start with Island of the Dinosaurs. And the both of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. Your number one source for Superman information on the web. On the way to the Tokyo Science Expo, Batman and Professor Martin Stein, transporting a device that transmits across the world, crash on an island after being attacked by a flying dinosaur. Trying to send a distress signal, they are captured by someone with green hands. Later, Wonder Woman goes looking with Robin, Apache Chief, and Ronald Raymond to find their missing colleagues. After finding the wrecked bat plane and two living dinosaurs, Dr. Dan Corbin saves them with a freeze beam. He explains how the dinosaurs came to be and asks them to stay the night. Until recently, it was like any other island. So where'd the dinosaurs come from? From this. My Genetto Beam. With this device, I transformed my private menagerie of animals into their dinosaur counterparts. Watch. Holy metamorphosis! This invention is evil. It is not the way of nature. My assistant felt that way too. He left before the beam was perfected. Now the glory for the restoring the race of dinosaurs will be mine alone. Whatever makes you happy, Doc. We just want to find Batman and Professor Stein. It's too dangerous to search after sundown. We'll look for them in the morning. You're welcome to stay the night. But I warn you, you must not leave the fortress. My sixth sense tells me he is not to be trusted. 
Consequently, the four find out that Corrin is a dinosaur, a human-like dinosaur. He has already changed Batman and Stein, and Wonder Woman falls victim next. <gasps> Batman! Professor! What have you done to them? I've turned them into creatures far superior to man. They are now dinosaurs, just like me. And once I finish connecting the Omnicaster to my Genero Beam, I will be able to send a signal that will turn everyone on Earth into dinosaurs. I'll stop you somehow. On the contrary, Wonder Woman, you are going to help me. Also, he plans to use Stein's device to change everyone into dinosaurs. Fortunately, Robin and Ronald find Apache Chief and Corwin's assistant. You see, about a month ago, we were testing the Genetto Beam on a group of animals, rearranging their molecular structures into their dinosaur counterparts, when Dr. Corwin accidentally fell into the path of the ray and was changed into a dinosaur with an evil nature. Then he tried to turn me into a dinosaur too. I've been hiding in the jungle ever since. Oh, you must stop him, Apache Chief. He's determined to turn all mankind into creatures like himself. He's already started. Just as Corman is ready for, for the worldwide transmission, a Stegosaurus stops it. The next morning, all the dinosaurs are back to normal, and Corman is back to himself. Apache Chief, how can I ever thank you? By returning the other dinosaurs to their original forms. You have my word. I've learned my lesson about tampering with Mother Nature. Why so glum, Ronald? You helped avert a global disaster. Oh, that's nothing like the disaster I'm gonna face when I have to explain to my dad where I've been all night. I think I'd rather be facing a... a dinosaur! Alright, dinosaurs. I generally... I just... I don't know. This is just the kind of thing that seems ill-advised even before Jurassic Park really points out to the dangers of uh, bringing dinosaurs back into the world alongside man. But we're going to get to that as I talk about this episode. Now, in our opener, we have Professor Stein and Batman in the Batplane, and Batman is taking the uh, Professor to the Tokyo Expo to uh, show off his uh, transmitter. And that, in and of itself, isn't weird. What's weird is that we have the current Batman talking to the former Batman, as Professor Stein is played by Olin Sewell, who played Batman in all the previous seasons. In this season, Adam West has uh, taken over the role of Batman. And this is by no means a knock on the performance of Adam West because his voice acting is perfectly fine as Batman. It's just when I look at the Super Friends Batman, I am so used to hearing Olin Sewell's voice coming out of that face and not Adam West. And it's even weirder seeing hearing Olin Sewell's voice and have him playing opposite Batman. Just one of those things, I guess, uh, with the nature of the casting of the Super Friends show. Adam West was brought in. I guess he was available now for some reason. And uh, I don't know if Olin Sewell wanted to do less. I don't actually know why he was replaced as Batman, but it is what it is. But it's just strange as a viewer hearing uh, old Batman and current Batman talking to each other. So the Batplane runs into a dinosaur-like creature and the plane is uh, forced to crash. And initially I thought this was Dinosaur Island. But it is a Dinosaur Island, but it's not, you know, the... DC Comics Dinosaur Island. I'm sure it was a thing at this point in DC Comics, but anyway, it's not that Dinosaur Island, so let's just kind of move on from that. So it's not a bad animation of the crash, and the show goes to a great length to kind of the show the uh, bat plane just kind of crumble up. And uh, just as Professor Stein is going to send out a distress signal, they come across a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And just when we think there are only dinosaurs on this island, well, 
other than uh, Professor Stein and Batman, they're caught in some kind of red beam that paralyzes them. So, strange things are afoot here. There's more than just dinosaurs on this island. Now, in Wonder Woman The Visible Jet, uh, Wonder Woman, Robin, and Ronnie Raymond are uh, looking for Batman and Professor Stein, and uh, the island is not hidden or anything, and they find the crumbled Batplane. And, you know, I'm looking at Ronnie Raymond here, and he looks really buff in that sweater. Firestorm looks much more lean, which is strange, considering that Firestorm takes Ronnie Raymond's form, not the professor. So this Ronnie in his orange sweater that he's wearing is far more buff than Firestorm. But this episode is worth it just to see Apache Chief wrestle with a T-Rex, and then send it over a cliff with a judo kick. So I guess I should amend my, uh, Description of they, it's Wonder Woman, Apache Chief, Ronnie Raymond, and Robin. And now they're about to be charged by a Triceratops when a red beam comes out and stuns the trike. And that's when we meet Professor Dan Corwin, the original owner of Jurassic Park. At least that's what it looks like. So uh, Robin asks uh, where the dinosaurs came from, and the snark in me wants to uh, say John Hammond. But this is nine years before the Jurassic Park movie, less years before the book. But still, it's a long time before Michael Crichton wrote the original Jurassic Park novel. So basically, Corman has invented a Genetto beam, and it turns animals into their dinosaur predecessors, which is problematic, because what we're going to see is most of the animals he fired on this thing don't have dinosaur predecessors. Humans did not evolve from dinosaurs, so we don't have dinosaur predecessors. I'm not even sure lizards have dinosaur predecessors. Working theory now is that dinosaurs evolved, at least the ones that weren't wiped out, Working theory, I believe that's accepted these days, is that dinosaurs evolved into birds. So this, so uh, Dr. Corman here is kind of creepy, and he wants to bring back the dinosaurs, which is uh, not a good idea, as all five Jurassic movies have told us. And something is up, as in uh, Corman's compound here, Ronnie finds Professor Stein's glasses. And one of the women finds Corman with the uh, Omnicaster. I called it a transmitter before, but basically uh, Professor Stein's device is uh, called the Omnicaster, and I guess it could just send... Uh, Radio signals and transmissions were all around, I guess. But uh, Corwin uh, nets Wonder Woman, and apparently uh, he turned Batman into a dinosaur. And Wonder Woman gets changed next, and apparently this crockpot has turned himself into a dinosaur as well. And he wants to turn everyone into dinosaur for some dumb reason. And apparently being turned into dinosaur also changes your personality. So it's not just Batman and Wonder Woman being dinosaurs with their same personality. Now they're all in on... Uh, Dr. Corwin's uh, plan here. So while all, the, all this is happening, Apache Chief is uh, wandering around in the woods, and uh, he finds uh, Professor Corwin's assistant, and now we kind of get the uh, lowdown on Professor Corwin. And we find, and uh, apparently what happened is Professor Corwin just kind of stumbled ass backwards into the Genetto Ray, and uh, he gets morphed into a dinosaur. This is not one careless scientist. And uh, so now they're going to uh, go after him and save the day, and prevent him from realizing his Cretaceous plot. So Apache Chief, who's still like 20 feet tall, shows up and rips the gate off the hinges, and then he then he shrinks down to normal size. I would have just stayed large and barreled through everything, but I guess I'm not the writer of this episode. I don't get to make these decisions. And uh, they really didn't pay attention to what was going on behind them, because after the superheroes wander into the compound, a stegosaurus follows them in as well. So uh, this episode puts forth the notion that the dinosaurs are more like lizards, but again, I do believe it's more commonly believed that the dinosaurs that weren't wiped out evolved into birds. So the uh, Stegosaurus comes in and stops the uh, transmission. And uh, remember before how I said Apache Chief shouldn't have shrunk down? Well, here we go. I'm proven right because he has to grow huge again to uh, get rid of the Stegosaurus. And now the assistant, who apparently the writers didn't care enough about to give him a name, returns everyone back to normal. And uh, Corrin can uh, thank Apache Chief by uh, reverting the uh, dinosaurs back into whatever they were originally. So apparently he's learned his lesson. Too bad he couldn't impart that same lesson on John Hammond. Think of all the mindless suffering that would have been 
prevented at Jurassic Park. So, one quick note, the uh, Triceratops is reverted back to a rhinoceros. Now, even though they look similar, and really the only similarity is that they both have horns on their faces, I'm not sure that's where rhinos come from. So, not much to this one, but you know, what kid doesn't like dinosaurs? I guess we're not looking for scientific accuracy in this episode, just a good time with dinosaurs. And at least there were dinosaurs this time, as opposed to uh, the day of the dinosaur, where there was like dinosaurs for 10 seconds. So... Let's finish this episode off with Uncle Big Sears Pedelec, or Super Brat, whichever you prefer. The common title is Uncle Big Sears Pedelec, and our synopsis is as follows. On an unusually boring day, the Wonder Twins discover a piece of red rock and take it back to the Hall of Justice. Everything's still quiet. Yes, too quiet. Hey, look what we found. Anyone know what this stuff is? Great, Krypton. What's the matter? That is red kryptonite. Red kryptonite? Yes. It has strange and unpredictable effects on Superman. It can make him stronger or weaker. Or younger. Hey, these clothes don't fit me. I want some clothes, and I want them right now. No, no, no! Look at him. He's so cute. Yeah? Well, you're uglier than that dopey old monkey. Well... That kid could use some clothes. That's not all he could use. One super suit, size small, coming up. Thanks, creep. Why, you little... How long is Superman gonna be super brat? The effects of red kryptonite usually last only a day or two. How long has it been now? 20 minutes. Hey, don't touch that! Whee! Hey, hey, watch hey, out! Don't, don't do that! Don't. don't! Just when things couldn't get any worse, Mixius Pitalik shows up to play uncle to the child. If the samurai and the twins experience life as toys, they have to bring animals back to the zoo when the troublesome imp lets them out. Next, when the super kid shakes the ground at a temper tantrum, Firestorm saves a bus from a falling water tower. If the samurai saves the train from colliding with a large scoop of ice cream, he finally sends Mixius Pitalik home by reversing the spelling of his name at a baseball stadium. During the night, Superman returns to normal and can't understand why the others are so tired after a boring day. This suit's getting a little tight on me. Hmm. I don't know why they're so tired. We didn't do anything all day. Well, I don't know who the writers of these two episodes are because they were, for some reason, on uh, these, these this particular episode, this half hour, coupled with uh, Day of the Dinosaurs, there are no title cards. Maybe the writers were embarrassed by these two episodes and didn't want their names associated with it. I would be. Oh my god. This episode is worse than, than the dinosaurs. Just dumb. Another. It is another slow day at the Hall of Justice. There is nothing to do. Go home. If there's nothing to do, trouble will find you eventually. You just you don't have to sit around and wait for it. Go home, get a hobby, play miniature golf or something. Don't just sit there. Because if you do stay there at the Hall of Justice, stupid Wonder Twins are going to come in with something. And what they do is they stumble across a glowing red chunk of rock. So while the rest of the Super Friends are bored, Zan just walks into the place with a chunk of red kryptonite. Are there no alarms in this place? Are there no sensors that say, hey, that's kryptonite, don't bring it in? And Xander shoves it in Superman's face and he freaks out. And it turns him into a child. And I love the way Samurai just slapped the kryptonite out of Xander's hand. So, I was talking about kryptonite earlier before with uh, Darkseid's Golden Trap. Here's red kryptonite, which is the unpredictable stuff. In the uh, pre-crisis era, it's a little bit different now. 
Red Kryptonite was always unpredictable and never affected Superman the same way twice. Even when it was employed in Lois and Clark, it never affected him the same way twice. It wasn't really until Smallville that Red Kryptonite would just kind of take away his inhibitions and, uh, and affect his personality in that fashion. And in Smallville, every time he came into contact with Red Kryptonite, it did that one singular thing to him. Back before that, when Red Kryptonite was conceived, it would affect him one way for... 36 to 48 hours, maybe even 24 hours, I don't remember. But uh, that particular chunk would always affect him in the same way, but another chunk would not. I'm not sure how you differentiate one chunk from the other. I mean, if I had a chunk of red kryptonite and I exposed Superman to it and it turns him into a water bottle for, or something like that, and then if I somehow cut that chunk of, of kryptonite in two, would both of them turn him into a water bottle? Or would each have a different effect because now they're no longer the same chunk? These are things you have to think about. And I don't think anybody is thinking about these. Perhaps I'll just go back to the episode and uh, leave you to ponder that. If anyone has a suggestion about that, write in. I'd be interested to hear it. So anyway, Superman turns into a child. And child Superman is mean and cranky. And he says what everybody else thinks about Gleek. That he's a stupid dopey monkey. But Jaina is offended and wants to uh, slap Super Brad around. So Firestorm coins him Super Brad. It is a name that is well earned. And right now, he is causing all kinds of trouble. Even more trouble than the Wonder Twins caused throughout the uh, course of one episode. Although it is pretty funny seeing him uh, ride Gleek like a pogo stick. Because if you have, have Gleek, you may as well have a, a Superman toddler ride him around like he's a pogo stick. This is probably the best use of Gleek yet. So here comes Mixie. Mixie has Pitalik, or this show will call him Mixoplek. If you want, you can go back to listen to one of my previous rants. I'm tired of doing it. But uh, Mixie's Pitalik has convinced Super Brad that he's his uncle. So by playing with the Super Friends, it involves turning Samurai into a basketball and the twins and Firestorm into Wooden Soldier. And it's not even Christmas. So now Gleek has some crash symbols and he just kind of wants to sit there and go, go monkey, go monkey. So now uh, Super Brad is bored uh, with all this and, you know, he wants to play outside. Good. He's a child of the 80s. He needs to go outside and play. He is not content to sit here and look at his phone, especially because those things have not been invented yet. So, you know, I'm just thinking as this kid caused all this trouble, maybe Firestorm should transmute some green kryptonite and put this kid in his place. Yeah, no, I agree. That might be a little bit too rough for a kid's cartoon. But man, if he doesn't deserve it. So now they're at the zoo and Super Brad is letting out the animals for some inexplicable reason. As if we need any more animal issues after the last episode. Now this episode is kind of one thing after another. What the Super Friends should do is stop worrying about Super Brad and stop worrying about the problem at hand, which is largely Mixie Spitalik. Because eventually somebody's going to get hurt through all this. So now Jaina turns into a dinosaur. As if the dinosaurs in the previous episode didn't uh, give us our full of dinosaurs. And she herds uh, the uh, lions into an ice cage, which is Zan. I'm not sure how long Zan can remain in Ice Cage, but hopefully long enough to get the lions back in their cages. Firestorm transmutes an awning into a net, and that stops uh, some uh, other uh, animals. Sometimes I, don't, I want to say tigers or a giraffe or, or something. So right now, Super Brad is hungry, and he's pounding on the street, causing an earthquake. And he hates everything that Mixie has put a look at giving him. And I'm starting to hate this episode, even though I am sympathizing a little bit with Mixie, because you ever try giving a toddler food? Ugh. They don't want it, they'll throw it. And no matter what, even if they reach for it, when you give it to them, they don't want it. It is an exercise in frustration. So, uh, the Wonder Twins bring him an ice cream cone, which is good. What kid uh, doesn't love ice cream? And uh, Mixie kind of outdoes them by making an entire, like, scoop of ice cream that takes up an entire intersection so obviously the super brat is gonna go with mixie and then i just kind of rolled my eyes when samurai turned the ice cream into whipped cream and now we're going out to the ball 
ball game. And uh, Super Baseball involves Super Brett hitting planes out of the sky with rocks. Fortunately, a firestorm is around to transmute rocks to the beach balls. So that's good. And beach balls are less likely to knock airplanes out of the sky. So uh, Mixie now kind of sows the seeds of his own defeat by having the uh, crowd uh, spell his name with uh, placards. It's very simple for Firestorm to rearrange them. And then Mixie reads it and is sent home to the fifth dimension as the heroes go back to the Hall of Justice. And then we get our ending. Super Brack grows back into Superman as the red kryptonite wears off while he's sleeping. And it was established earlier in the episode that the uh, suit does not change uh, sizes with him as uh, when he was turned into a toddler, the suit remained adult size and uh, Firestorm just kind of transmuted it to uh, the size he was at the moment. So, But apparently in the uh, outfit does not st- stretch back as uh, so when Superman sits up after uh, the change back wakes him. The shirt uh, leaves his midriff exposed and his pants don't quite reach his knees. And his only comment is that the suit's getting a little tight. I would think that if I woke up and my clothes changed that dramatically, I think I, I would have had a little bit more of a reaction than uh, just, uh, oh, hey, my outfit's a little tight. But it's clear that Super Brat laid waste to the Super Friends who are passed out all over the hall, leaving Superman to comment that he doesn't understand why they're so tired because they didn't do anything that day. So apparently Superman had no memory of his uh, day as Super Brat. And that's pretty much how parents of toddlers feel, just ready to pass out anyway. I should know. I am one. But overall, you know, a fun episode, but dumb fun. It really just goes from one Mixias Pitalic Antic to the next with giving you very little room to breathe. There's, we just have Mixias Pitalic Antics and Super Brad Antics until it's time to send Mixie home. So just a collection of Mixias Pitalic Antics. So next, we will finish the Legendary Superpowers show with the Case of the Dreadful Dolls and the Royal Ruse and the Village of Lost Souls and the Curator. So, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast to your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. So, until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.